Good morning, church. If you would keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 14, we're going to walk through this text together. But even as you've heard it read, um, even as you look to the subheadings of your Bible, you'll see that everything we're going to talk about this morning, everything that we've seen in our text, is revolving around the celebration of Passover for Jesus and for his disciples. Um, I think it's important for us to also note, before we dive into the text, that for the next six weeks, we'll be walking through different sermons in Mark 14, and we'll get into Mark 15, but in the next six weeks for us, we have to realize that what's taking place for Jesus and his disciples was really happening in four days. I think we lose sight of that fact often when we just read through and we're studying through over a month-long uh, period of time that we, that we lose sight of the fact that this is, this is four quick days for Jesus. These events are happening one after another. Um, everything, though, in our text this morning is revolving around this celebration of Passover. Uh, for Jews in Jesus' day, as well as for today, currently, uh, Passover is an annual celebration meal um, commemorating the, a defining moment in the, in the history of Israel and the life of Israel as a nation. And I know we've heard uh, the Passover story. If you go back to the Old Testament, you guys that know your Bible and that have been in church any amount of time, you, you know the story. But I think it's important for us this morning that we walk through that again because it sets the tone for what's going to be taking place in our text. And I think that's important to understand that historical background before we ever dive into our text. And so uh, more than a millennium, a thousand years before Jesus is born, um, the Israelites were enslaved to Egypt. They were Egyptian slaves trapped in miserable bondage by a pagan king that thought he was a god. Uh, And after sending numerous plagues to Egypt to loosen Pharaoh's grip, Israel, uh, Pharaoh's grip on Israel, one night God sent a final plague. Um, He drew, if you will, his sword of divine justice. Now to be clear, I think we often miss this point as readers of the text, looking back on on, on Old Testament scripture. To be clear, justice that night in Egypt fell on everyone. I think we often think that just happened to the, the Egyptians, right? But in, in the Passover, in that first Passover, Jews were not exempted simply because they were the people of Israel. Every home in Egypt that night, Jews and Egyptians alike, someone would die under God's divine justice. The only way for your family to escape that was to put faith in God, namely in God's sacrificial provision. And so God instructed them that to do this, to have faith in God, what it meant to have faith in God meant that you would slay or kill a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the door as a sign of your faith that you're trusting God to provide that sacrifice. Every home that night, though, there would be a death, either the death of a child or the death of a lamb. And so when justice came down, when God's wrath came down, it fell on your family through one of your children, or it fell upon the substitute, that you were protected under the blood of the Lamb. If the family accepted this shelter, this provision, this substitute, then death passed over and you were saved. That's why it's called Passover. Uh, the family was saved only on the basis of faith in God and God's substitutionary sacrifice. Now, if you know the gospel, your heart should be leaping right now because we get excited because this is exactly what we believe in the gospel. This is a picture of what's happening. It's what's going to happen in Christ. This is how God chose to deliver the Israelites and lead them to freedom out of bondage and into the land that he had promised them. And so every year, the Passover meal commemorated this deliverance, which has been 
this most important, this defining moment in the life of Israel as a nation. But as dramatic, as moving, as inspiring as this deliverance was, when you go back and read the Old Testament account, it's an incredible story. And as incredible as it is, though, and as inspiring as it is, it leaves us with a, a lingering question, a nagging question, if you will. And it's this, why in the world would the sacrifice of a woolly little farm animal exempt you from divine justice? Why is it that killing this lamb meant that your family would not have to endure the wrath of God? Why is that? I think the answer to that question lies in what happens as Jesus celebrates, commemorates this Passover with his disciples in our text today. So let's read through again, make some observations, see what the Lord would have for us in the text. Verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent, he sent uh, two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man, uh, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whenever, wherever he goes, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. In 1906, Albert Schweitzer published uh, his most famous work, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And in that work, he believes, Schweitzer believes, that Jesus saw himself as a prophet, uh, a prophet that would usher in the end of time, the final prophet. Schweitzer also believed that Jesus was badly mistaken and that things got out of hand for him as he began to proclaim this and that as a result, Jesus was brutally put to death because of his self Uh, identification as this end-of-time prophet. Understanding uh, Jesus in this way, though, didn't stop with Schweitzer. It actually started a movement uh, of people that would be on this quest for the historical Jesus, and liberal and skeptical scholars, even to this day, still would agree with Schweitzer that Jesus was a fair man, he was a knowledgeable man, a spiritual leader for Israel, but that things began to spin out of control for him and that it ultimately cost him his life. Friends, understanding Jesus in this way, this understanding of Jesus, falls flat on its face with a fair and honest reading of the text that we're in this morning. Because when you read Mark 14, what we see here is that our Savior, that Jesus, the King, has total and complete control. Down to the very last detail of what's going on in our text this morning, it shows him to not only know what's coming in the future, but to be in in charge of, in control of those events that are coming his way. And there's no hint of desperation, no fear, no anger, no futility on Jesus' part when he, he predicts how these coming events, his own death, are going to play out. You don't see there's any, any part that catches him off guard or blindsides him. He doesn't cower. He doesn't retreat. He, he, he doesn't hide when the plots to destroy him unfold. Jesus displays, as he has throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, that he has sovereign freedom and authority over all things, and that even though he has that authority, he will follow this course that he's freely chosen and in, 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 in accordance with God's divine plan. King Jesus knows where he's going. He knows what will happen. 
and he marches on with his head towards, with his face towards the cross. And if you're having some deja vu as we read this text, that's probably appropriate. Uh, Michael preached for us Mark chapter 11 where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the way that Jesus goes about receiving this donkey sounds very similar to the way that he instructs his disciples to find a room for the celebration of Passover. Both events, the receiving of the donkey, the receiving of the room, show us that Jesus is in full control. He's orchestrating these things. He's the one that's putting these things together. Verse 13 says, you're going to see a man, he's going to be carrying a jar of water. Jesus knew this man was going to be there because he arranged it. It was his doing. Uh, In that day, uh, women carried jars of water. Men would carry wineskins. And so this guy carrying this jar of water would have stood out like a a dude in our day carrying a purse. I mean, you you wouldn't expect to see that. And so this stands out to them. It's a sign for his disciples. This plan that Jesus has already orchestrated, he's already put it into place. In verse 16, it says the disciples set out. They went into the city and they found it just as he had told them. The question, why then would Jesus go through all of this prearranged, all these plans, all this prep that he's doing for this meal? Why is it that important to him that he do all this ahead of time and lay it out in just this exact way? Well, friends, this is perhaps the most important meal in the history of the world. Because in this meal that he's about to have with his disciples, he's going to tell them, and better yet, show them that his death would make salvation possible. That everything they've been doing as a Jewish people, as a, as, the, as the nation of Israel, is going to have fulfillment in him. That's the importance of this meal. And there's no way that anything, nothing is going to stop or thwart his plan. He's in total control. He's in total and complete control of all the events surrounding this Passover celebration. As you continue in the text, we find out that not only is he in control of the, the Passover celebration they're about to, to observe... He's in complete control of even his betrayal that's going to lead to his death. Continue reading with me uh, in the text, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And they were reclining at table and eating. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, "Is is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Friends, Jesus is in complete control. He's not surprised by his his betrayal. Heartbroken, yes, maybe. Uh, Disappointed, yes, maybe, but not caught off guard. The betrayer was a close friend to Jesus, a trusted friend. He was the treasurer for Jesus and his band of followers. Very trusted and, and friend to this point. And while they're reclining at table, a very common posture in this culture to be reclining at a low table together, having this meal, Jesus opens his mouth and his next words here would have sent chills down their spine. One of you, one of you that have been following me, you're going to betray me. And in saying this, Jesus is linking himself to the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 41. Some of you may have a cross reference there in your Bible, Psalm 41 verse 9 even my close friend who, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. As Jesus says this, connecting himself to the Psalms, we know this evoked guilt from his followers. It, it broke their hearts. Each one of them goes around in the circle saying, is it, is it me? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Jesus? And then so Jesus narrows it a bit more. He says it's one of the twelve. Shows us there were probably other people in the room, maybe even women and children and other people that had been following Jesus into Jerusalem but then he narrows it and he says, no, it's, it's actually one of the 12. It's one of my closest followers. 
It's one of the 12 that have spent all their time with me and that I've invested my life into them. It's one of those men. Friends this morning, church family this morning, don't let this just be an exercise in learning history or an exercise in learning something about the Bible. Let this question that they're asking of themselves be our question this morning. Is it me, Jesus? Is it I? Is it me? Is it me, Jesus, that that is betraying you? Because the question this morning demands a yes from each and every one of us. Because the reality is, yes, Jesus is betrayed by Judas, but by the next morning, every one of the disciples will have betrayed Jesus. We see in the text, Judas betrays him for greed in verses 10 and 11. The rest of the disciples will betray him for weakness, verses 37 through 42. They'll betray him from fear, verses 50 through 52. They'll betray him because they're cowards in verses 66 through 72. So what about me and you? What about us, church family? Every one of us is a Judas because every sin against Jesus is a personal act of rebellion and betrayal of Jesus. Every time we sin, we look at Jesus and say, your way's not good enough. I can do this on my own or I have a better way. I know more than you. I'm trusting in, in my comfort or in what I want in this moment, not what you've said. So it's an act of rebellion and betrayal every time we look at Jesus and sin. And here's where the beauty of the gospel shines brilliantly through is that for even those of us who betray this great king, even for those of us that would betray, betray this glorious Savior, we can experience immediate and complete forgiveness through repentance and confession. That we would come to him and repent of our rebellion, repent of our betrayal, and he says, yes. Yes, it is you, but I welcome you to my arms. Now this is two different scenarios in ten verses where Jesus has shown himself to not only know but be in full control of the events that are about to happen. And so now that that much is made clear, back to this lingering question about the Passover. Why is it then that in the Old Testament we see the sacrifice of this woolly little farm animal and somehow that exempts people from divine justice? We see the answer based on Jesus' sovereign power, his sovereign control in the next several verses. I think to help make that clear for us, though, a bit more background is needed on the actual celebration of Passover, right? So the Passover meal, it had to be prepared in a certain way every time. It had to be carried out with certain steps every time. These were prescribed. They were given to the Israelite people. You can imagine how by the time you're probably even five years old, but certainly by the time you're seven or ten years old, you would have known those steps as your family carried them out every year. You'd have that tradition memorized. Much like if you have Christmas traditions in your home, your children know what to expect. They know the steps. They know what's coming up. They know what's about to happen. You have it engraved on your heart. And this practice, this practice of Passover, uh, to certainly be an over-summary, it had at least four points that we saw Uh, that the presider, the host of the celebration, carried out. Each of these four points in the ceremony, in the celebration of Passover, uh, the the presider would hold up a glass of wine, and he would explain the feast's meaning to the household as they listened to him. And the four different cups of wine represented four promises that God made in Exodus chapter 6. It was back to Exodus. These promises were that God would rescue them from Egypt. He would would bring them freedom from slavery. He would uh, redeem them by his power. He would renew a relationship with them. And so these four promises, the presider would hold up a cup and remind them of the story every year. The third cup in this celebration came at a point when the meal was 
almost completely finished. The presider would hold up the third cup, and when it came to that point, he would, uh, in the words of Deuteronomy 6, he would bless the elements of, of the meal, the bread, the bitter herbs, the lamb meat. And as the presider gave this blessing from Deuteronomy 26, he would explain how these foods, these individual elements, were symbolic reminders of the various aspects of Israelite captivity and deliverance, how God delivered the people from Egypt. So, for example, he would, he would hold up this third cup and begin to make this blessing on the elements, and then he would hold up uh, bread for them to see. He would show them the bread, and he would say, this is the bread of our affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. Recalling for them, if you remember your Old Testament, when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and God provided bread for them, he's recounting the story. He's reminding them of their past, of what God had done for them. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is the presider. He's the host of the Passover meal. And the disciples, um, and Mark tells us this morning um, what the disciples are seeing, what Jesus is saying as he's the presider over the meal when Jesus holds up this ceremonial third cup in the traditional Passover celebration. It's a bit different, though. He says this, if you continue in the text with me. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you, new in the kingdom of God. So in our time left this morning, I want to give us three observations, three ways that Jesus changes this Passover celebration from the the way that it was typically celebrated and what that means for us, right? So number one, Jesus changes the script for the celebration. He changes the script. Can you imagine the shock, maybe even the terror from the disciples when Jesus broke from the script, right? They've heard this their entire lives. He's blessed the elements. That's common. It's just another tradition in the Passover that they've seen that part of it done since they were very small children. And then all of a sudden, after blessing the elements, in the middle of explaining the symbolism of the various elements, he departs from the traditional understanding that had been handed down by generation after generation after generation of Jews. This time, Jesus shows them the bread, which would have happened every time, but instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness, Jesus says, this is my body. Jesus, what do you mean here? The disciples are are probably, what in the world? Why are you varying from the script? (laughs) These religious leaders already hate you, and, and, and now you're varying from the script that we've been handed down. Jesus is saying to them, friends, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering, because I'm going to lead you on the ultimate exodus. I'm going to bring you to the ultimate deliverance from slavery and from bondage. Jesus remixed the script here because he was showing them that a little woolly farm animal was never meant to be the final sacrifice. That he himself, that Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice. And he shows them this with a promise. You may be thinking, well, Matt, I don't don't really see Jesus making a promise here in the text. Well, it's there. Let me show you. In this culture, when someone would say, I'm not going to eat or drink until I fill in the blank. What they were doing in that moment was making an oath. You see something similar to this in Acts chapter 23. Acts 23, there's some folks that are so mad at Paul and his preaching that they say, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill this guy. It's that important to us. Similar to how we would say, I'm going to do it if it's the last thing I do. I'm going to do this thing even if it kills me. We say that sort of thing even though we never mean it, right? 
We never would be so serious about that flippant comment that we would actually die for what we're saying we're going to do. But in biblical times, this was taken so seriously that it was marked by blood. And this time, um, the, 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 the makers of the covenant uh, that would establish this covenant, they would kill an animal. And then they would cut this, this animal in half, and the two parties in the covenant would walk between the pieces of this carcass that are laid open, and they would repeat the covenant as they walked through this bloody mess, as they stated the promise. And yes, this is gory, and it's weird to us, and Peter would have a field day with this type of thing, but that's how serious it was to them. This was their way of saying, if I don't fulfill my promise, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, may my blood be spilled, and maybe I, may I be cut in half. That's how serious I am about this promise. May I be cut in half if it doesn't happen. It's a vivid way for them to make a covenant binding. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look at what Jesus is saying, verse 23. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus' words mean that as the result of his substitutionary death, his sacrifice, there is now a new covenant between God and man. The basis of that covenant, the basis of that relationship is his own shed blood. He says, my blood of the covenant. No longer lambs, no longer sacrifices like you've been seeing. When Jesus announced this, he's, he's not going to eat or drink until he does it new in the kingdom with us. He's promising his unconditional commitment to us. Friends, let that wash over you this morning. That not as a result of anything you've done or could ever do, but as a result of his own blood, he's established a promise, a covenant with you, that I'm going to usher you into the Father's arms. I'm going to bring you into the King's feast. Friends, there's a whole lot of confidence in that. That he's making this promise. And don't miss the significance here. With these simple gestures, uh, these men had seen probably 30 to 40 times, depending on how old they were. Jesus was taking something they had seen their entire lives, and he's holding up bread, and he's saying, this is my body. This is my blood. All the significance that you've seen in the earlier sacrifices, all of those other lambs, all of those other Passovers, they're really about me. And just as the first Passover was observed on the night before God redeemed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, this Passover meal is eaten the night before God would redeem the world from sin through the blood of his perfect lamb. The beauty, the imagery here is it's perfect. It's impeccable. Second thing we see, Jesus not only changes the script, Jesus changes the menu for the celebration. Verses 22 through 25 tell us that as Jesus stood up to the bless the food, uh, he held up bread. There's nothing uncommon here. All Passover meals would have had bread. The text goes on and says that he blessed the wine. There's nothing new here. All Passover meals would have had wine. But here's what's strange. <laughs> Uh, what should catch us off guard is not what Jesus held up to bless. All of these things are common. What should catch us off guard when we read this text? And we often miss this because we have our cultural blinders on, right? We're reading this text as New Testament Christians would read it. So we read it and we think, oh yeah, this is the first Lord's Supper, so obviously there's bread and there's wine because that's what's needed when we do communion. But what's shockingly missing In every one of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them mention this. The thing that's missing should strike us, should catch us off guard. None of the gospels mention a lamb at this Passover. That's the whole point. The Passover was not a vegetarian meal. It's not like Jesus is doing this new hipster thing where they're not going to have meat. That's the whole point of Passover. 
to celebrate the lamb that was sacrificed so that we could, we could be uh, for, forgiven and God's wrath wouldn't be upon us anymore. What kind of Passover would be celebrated without a lamb? That's the whole point. The text doesn't say there was a lamb, but the point is that each of the Gospels do not mention the lamb. Tim Keller says this, there was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. That's the striking thing that should catch us when we read this. The menu had changed because Jesus is the main course. He is the lamb. That's why John the Baptist says when he sees him for the first time, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world in John chapter 1. We shared this with numerous Muslim folks last week in Malaysia. They would hold to and, and at least acknowledge John the Baptist as one of their prophets. And so we bring up John the Baptist and we would say, hey, wouldn't it be strange, Azir, if I just started calling you a lamb? Like, we, we don't call one another lambs in our day and age. I mean, that's, that's not happening in American culture and it's not happening in Malaysian culture. It's just a strange thing to call someone a lamb. That's exactly what John does. He sees Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb of God. That's a really strange thing to say unless he is truly the sacrificial lamb that's come to take away sins. That's why Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, as the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's why Mark is so careful here to record the words of Jesus accurately. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood poured out. The same language from Isaiah. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one that John was talking about when he said the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. That's me. And here's the good news, friends. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. I bet we had this conversation with 50 uh, Muslim folk last week. Every other religion in the world would say that you have to do something to earn God's favor. And this is the answer to this question about the, the woolly little farm animal and how, how in the world that could mean forgiveness for sinful men. On the cross, Jesus took what we deserved. The sin, the guilt, the brokenness of this world fell upon him in the cross. And so in the Old Testament, when we see the sacrifice of lambs, when we see all of these sacrifices that are being made, it's a picture of what's to come. That the Israelites would believe that God is going to send one who would take away, not just cover up momentary forgiveness, but take away the sin of the world. The Israelites, in faith, believed God and took him at his word. A lamb was coming, and Jesus is saying, I am that lamb. My death means your life. That's really good news. No other religion in the world can claim that. Number three, Jesus not only changed the script, Jesus not only changed the menu, Jesus changes the meaning of the celebration. In telling the same story in his gospel, Luke records a few more words than Jesus. Luke chapter 22 says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. And here's the added part. Do this in remembrance of me. Luke adds this, this last phrase, and from this point forward, the point is clear. In the past, Jesus says, when you celebrated, when you remembered the deliverance of, of Israelites from Egypt, from slavery, you did this Passover to remember that physical deliverance, to remember what God did to bring you out of slavery. From now on, when you celebrate, when believers of God celebrate, you remember the deliverance from spiritual slavery that my death is bringing. He's changing this meaning. 
Jesus is saying to his disciples, as well, of us, as well as those of us who would follow him today, when you eat the bread, when you drink of the cup in this celebration, you're celebrating my sacrifice. That's why I call it the Lord's Supper or communion. And as we close, I want to I show us in the time we have left, as Jesus is redefining the way we celebrate as believers in God, as followers of Yahweh, we celebrate his sacrifice, this new covenant that is in his blood. I want to give us four truths, four glorious truths that this new meaning, this, this, this new truth, this teaching from Jesus means for us. So number one, Jesus must be received. Jesus must be received. The first Passover in Egypt, the very first one, uh, as well as all those who fought, that followed in the Israelite tradition, it was a real meal. It was a real meal. They sat down and ate. It wasn't enough that a lamb was just killed, sacrificed. It had to be consumed. It had to be taken in, uh, ingested into their body. In the same way, the Lord's Supper is a taking in of Christ's death. Mark 14, Mark 14, 22 says, He took bread and after blessing it, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Some of your translations may take it, <laughs> literally take it, this is my body. And Jesus is letting us know here that we have to take what he is doing for us. It has to be received actively. You don't get the benefit of food unless you, unless you digest it. I mean, think about it this morning, as hard as this may be. I realize it's slightly after breakfast and lunch is a long way away. But imagine with me this morning your favorite meal, like your favorite meal in all the world, cooked by your favorite person or restaurant, and it's piled high in front of you at this table, and it's cooked to perfection, and it smells incredible. I mean, just picture that. Imagine that right there in front of you. You're like starving right now. I can see it on your face. Did you know that you can still starve to death? You could literally starve to death with that right there in front of you, your favorite meal. Why? Because you have to be taking in, eating, digesting a meal to be nourished by it. The preparation of the food, it doesn't matter how good it looks, who cooked it, how good it smells, or how good you think it might taste. If you're not willing to pick it up and take it in and eat it, it's of no benefit to you. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's the same here. Augustine said, creed et manducasti. In Latin, believe and you have eaten. This is what it means for us, church family. Yes, we're going to physically eat in a moment to, to celebrate what he's done, his broken body and his blood. But to believe is to take in this gift that he's given us, his sacrifice. Have you believed? Have you received this gift from Christ? It's by taking communion even this morning. That's what we're saying. The real food I need. This is never going to fulfill our hunger physically. What we need even more than that, the real food I need is Jesus' sacrificial death that made atonement for my rebellion. Number two, we're going to have to move quickly. Jesus calls us into relationship with him. And Jesus calls us into relationship with him. Here's the deal. You can't benefit from, you can't appropriate the benefits of Jesus' death unless he first calls you into relationship with him. Uh, to share a meal with someone, especially in Jesus' culture at this time, was to have a relationship with that person. And Paul, in his teachings in 1 Corinthians, he's, he's teaching the Corinthian church on this issue of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. We often read that text when we do communion. And Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Now, was the Corinthian church at that last supper? No. But it was for them. Are me and you, were we able to go back in time and be at that last supper? No. But it was for us. 
That's what Jesus is saying when, when, when Paul is summarizing here what happened on that night. He's saying this was broken for this body, this blood was shed for you. And by that, Jesus is inviting us, he's calling us to himself. Jesus is saying that a personal relationship with him by repentance and faith is the only way that this substitutionary sacrifice can be applied to us. He invites us into relationship with him. Have you come to Jesus yet? Have you had your sins forgiven? Have you made this one, this Christ, the king of your life? Number three, Jesus makes us a family. Jesus makes us a family. And, and we, may, we may not notice this because we read this text, again, with our cultural blinders on, with the way that we do church and the way that we do life and family uh, guiding us in the text. But the Jews would have noticed this immediately. At first hearing this, they would have noticed it. You see, the Jews celebrated Passover uh, as a family. There was a feast that you celebrated with your household. It was a family meal, a family celebration. So there's a question then. Why in the world is Jesus pulling the disciples away from their families and and organizing this Passover meal between he and them? Good question. It's because he's creating an altogether new, an altogether different kind of family. If you have brothers or sisters, siblings, a mom or dad that you were raised in, grandparents in a house that you were raised in, then you'll understand this. There's a powerful bond that's created within a family because the individuals within that household share common experiences. They went through things together. Uh, They have more shared experiences with each other than with anybody else. There's a powerful bond that's created by sharing goals with one another, with sharing experiences, with sharing common beliefs and assumptions. And Jesus is turning all of that on its head and he's saying, hey, all of those familial relationships you have, the closeness that you feel, and and trust me, for their culture, it was much more close than ours would be. The idea of moving across the country to go to school or something like that, unthinkable. He says, all those family relationships that you think you know, that you've experienced, that you think you understand how you're close as a family, I'm building a family that's even tighter than the best of your family. I'm knitting together a family that's closer than any of you could ever have imagined, the unity that's going to be provided in the family that I'm creating. That's why Jesus in Mark 3 says, whoever does the will of of, of God is my brother and sister and mother. Here Jesus is calling men from their earthly families to emphasize the eternal significance of a heavenly family. The family you're being brought into is closer than anything you could have imagined. D.A. Carson says this, What binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common jobs, common politics, common nationality, or common accents, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they are saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. When you take the Lord's Supper in a moment, friends, you're doing it with a family. You're taking in a meal with brothers and sisters that are closer to you by the blood of Christ than the own blood that you share with your biological family. I've heard this testimony from many of you that you feel this is your family. It's closer than any family you could have imagined. That's the point. That's the point. Number four, Jesus gives us a future. Jesus gives us a future. As he presides over the Passover with his disciples, he tells the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. He does it in two sentences. He says this, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He's predicting his death. He's telling the importance of his death. And in doing so, he's establishing a point on a timeline. The second thing he says, that the rest of the story, the second thing he says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom. 
Jesus is saying, this Passover meal, where I'm redefining everything, where I'm showing you the significance of my death, this Passover meal is really making possible the ultimate Passover meal, the one that is to come. See what Jesus is doing? He's drawing a straight line from the events that are about to unfold, his death and resurrection, to the coming uh, feast in in the new kingdom, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is saying, these events you're about to see when I go to the cross and die is the way in which you can be a part of a future that will never end. A forever kingdom that will never be marred by sin or fallenness. He's drawing a straight line to a greater day, a greater future that awaits us. It reminds us of Psalm 96, verse 12 and 13. It says this, Then let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. Isaiah 55, verse 12, the mountains and hills will burst before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Friends, did you know if you put a seed into a pot of soil and then you were to take that pot and put it away from the sun into a dark closet, those seeds would go into dormancy. Nothing would happen. They wouldn't survive. They wouldn't live. They wouldn't burst forth in life. But if you take that same pot with those dormant seeds uh, and you put it in front of the sun, you were to take it outside and put it in the sun, then that same pot and those same seeds would burst forth in new life in the presence of the sun. All that has been dormant in them will be brought to life and they'll produce. The Bible says that everything in this world, not just humans, are like that. Plants and trees and rocks and animals, all just dormant. All just shadows of of what they could have been and what they will be when he returns and establishes this new kingdom. When they're in the presence of their creator. When the Lamb of God presides over that final feast and they're in the presence of God and his glory covers the earth again. Then Psalms and Isaiah will be ringing true. That the hills and the trees won't even be able to stand it. The trees won't even be able to stand it. They'll clap their hands. They'll rejoice. They'll sing and dance before their maker. Friends, if the Bible talks about inanimate objects in that way, can you imagine what this future kingdom is going to be like for you and I when we're freed from the presence of sin? When we're ushered into the kingdom and before our king who's given his life to secure our redemption. Can you imagine what that moment and that eternity is going to be like? The Lord's Supper gives us a small but very real foretaste of that deliverance. As we close, I want you to imagine that you're in Egypt or right outside of Egypt immediately following the first Passover. And you stop an Israelite person in that day and you say, hey, who are you and what in the world's been going on here? What's just taking place? What is this that's all unfolding? They would probably reply something like, well, I was a slave and I was under a death sentence, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb And I escaped that bondage, and now God lives in our midst, and we are following him to a promised land. Friends, that is precisely what Christians are saying today. We were slaves. We were under a bondage of sin that ultimately meant our death. Yet he rescued us. And now he lives in our midst, and we're following him to a promised land, to a land that will never end. If you've trusted in Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, the greatest longings of your heart The greatest desires of your heart will be satisfied on that great and glorious day when we sit down for an eternal feast in the promised land with our everlasting king. That day is coming, friends, and it's going to be a good day. 